Hi, this is the Poetry Corner podcast with Dr. Timothy Bartell at the St. Constantine School. So we are a couple episodes into our series on early Christian poetry. Perhaps we're far enough in for me to remind you of why we're doing this. Often in this podcast, we talk about more recent poetry and especially poetry in English, poetry written in Britain or Ireland or America or written by poets who we might feel like we have something in common with. Early Christian poetry or poetry that's written roughly between 100 AD and around 500 AD might seem pretty far removed from us. But one of the important things about early Christian poetry is it really provides the link between the poetry that we have today and the poetry of classical antiquity. Often when you read chronologically through the history of literature, you'll read the most ancient poetry, uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, Homer, Virgil. You'll get the Babylonian Near Eastern. You'll get the ancient Greek and ancient Roman. And maybe if you're inclined toward the Bible, maybe you would read some of the uh, Old Testament Psalms, Psalm 23, things like that. You'd get a feel for what ancient poetry was and the concerns they had. The Hebrews who are worshiping Yahweh, the Greeks and Romans who are worshiping the pantheon of Zeus or Jupiter or Apollo or Athena or Minerva. Then usually the next step in reading is to move forward to medieval literature, reading things like Beowulf, uh, Dante's Divine Comedy, and then moving into the early modern and Renaissance period, Geoffrey Chaucer, William Shakespeare. One might be a little confused if one goes from reading Virgil, who dies in the early first century AD, and Beowulf, which is written around seven or 800 AD. One might think, oh gosh, I guess no one wrote poetry for 700 years. And also, I wonder why, after Virgil, Beowulf starts with a hero epic that is deeply Christian, and then we move on to poems like the Divine Comedy, which are steeped in Christian theology, which are formally very complex, interacting with all these ideas of saints and martyrs and church historical figures. One might think, gosh, it's a little sad that no one wrote any poetry in between Virgil and Beowulf and Dante. Well, it turns out people did. We just don't read it often. Partly that's because some of this poetry is difficult to find. Some of this poetry is not translated widely. If you go to Barnes & Noble, which I did recently, you'll find half a dozen copies of, half a dozen different translations even, of the Iliad, the Odyssey, Beowulf, and the Divine Comedy. You will find no copies of English translations of early Christian poetry. This is partly because there just hasn't been as much interest in early Christian poetry. There has been interest in early Christian theology and early Christian thought, you might find half a dozen different translations of Augustine's Confessions on the shelf of a local bookstore. Whether or not you'll find Augustine's Confessions on the shelf of a Christian bookstore uh, is, is, another, is another issue. It seems that many Christian bookstores these days are interested in publishing only very contemporary things, and to look for a theology section, let alone a patristic section, uh, is an exercise in futility. So early Christian poetry is in an interesting place. It's starting to be studied more, but access to good translations of it is relatively recent. And it's just one of the interesting, perhaps, idiosyncrasies of the study of literature. Sometimes we get so obsessed with particular moments in time, say, the High Middle Ages of Dante, uh, the Golden Age of Athens, 
in 5th century Greece, uh, Elizabethan England, that we, we pour so much of our time into studying these, these time periods and the literature from them that we don't have a chance to branch out. And one of the awesome things about being a young scholar, entering into the study of literature, the study of poetry, the study of, of human thought and great texts, is every new generation has an opportunity to get to know what their forefathers and foremothers have thought was important, but also to branch out. It's been a hobby of mine recently to look into this early Christian period. So we've already talked in our last episodes about uh, the Odes of Solomon from the early 2nd century AD. Now we were going to move forward not too far to around 200 AD with a writer who really brings forward Christian poetry into line with the classical Greek tradition. As I said in our Solomon discussion of Odes of Solomon, it's unclear whether the Solomon poet wrote originally in Greek or in Syriac. It's possible that he wrote in both. What's clear, though, is he's following the Hebrew tradition of parallelism of form, which we find in uh, David's Psalms, in, in the Song of Solomon, uh, in the Psalms of Asaph and the Sons of Korah and others, and as we find in the Greek canticles and poems uh, in the New Testament, especially, say, the Magnificat or the, the Song of Simeon, the Canticle of Zechariah in Luke. It's with Clement of Alexandria that we start to get poetry that's written in Greek about Christ and Christological ideas and Christian theology, but is using traditional Greek meter. Now, it's been a number of episodes since we talked about ancient Greek meter, let me remind us that ancient Greek meter was based on the quantity of syllables. Now, what does that mean? Well, in Greek, as in Latin, there are both long and short vowel sounds. Think the difference between an oo and an ah sound. English doesn't quite have such obvious quantitative difference between long and short vowel sounds, but you can kind of approximate it. In English, of course, we're accentual syllabic in our meter. We have patterns of stressed and unstressed syllables that we put together to make English meter. Greek meter is patterns of long and short syllables. One of the most popular Greek metrical structures is the anapest which is short, short, long. And poets would put together patterns of short, short, long, short, short, long, short, short, long, and have a nice line of, say, anapestic trimeter or anapestic dimeter, where you have a couple anapests in a row, which give us a nice, at least in English, da-da-da, da-da-da, da-da-da sound. Or, if you're in Greek, kind of an a-a-o, a-a-o, a-a-o sound. So Clement, who is this guy who's writing an anapestic meter? Well, Clement is really important not just in the history of Christian theology, but also in the history of Greek philosophy. Clement was both a presbyter, that is a priest, and a philosopher, and in fact the chief pedagogue, that is the, the head of a philosophical school, in Alexandria in the late 2nd and early 3rd century AD. Now Alexandria is a center of Greek culture, which has heavy Jewish influence on it, which is, of course, located in Africa. 
So Alexandria is this wonderful kind of blending of cultures. It's named after Alexander the Great, who basically founded it as a center of Greek culture in Africa uh, on the North African coast, but it also has had a strong Jewish presence. So Jewish thought, Jewish religion, Jewish philosophy has always been there. And it became one of the most important archdioceses of the ancient Christian world. So classical pagan Greek, traditional Hebrew and Jewish, and uh, more recently, Christian theology and philosophy have all thrived there. So if you're going to be the head teacher, the chief pedagogue at the Philosophical School of Alexandria, that means you're going to be one of the best regarded and most intelligent and bright and thoughtful people of your age. And everyone agrees, whether Christian or non-Christian, whether Jewish or, or, uh, or not, that Clement really fits this to a T. He is a brilliant individual. He has some idiosyncratic ideas. One of his most famous pupils, Origen, very famously wrote some things that are quite in line with traditional Orthodox theology in Christianity, but also wrote some things that are that are very wacky and were, were in fact condemned by later theologians and even councils. So Clement is an interesting figure. He's one of these writers who, though he's obviously a strong Christian, obviously a priest, his ideas aren't always necessarily tried and true biblical doctrine and that only. Often he's very speculative in his writings. He has a long treatise on Christian theology and Christian doctrine called the Pedagogus or the Teacher. And it becomes very clear early on that the great teacher he has in mind is not himself or Plato or Socrates, but of course Christ himself. Christ is the great philosophical teacher. Uh, this is a rather long treatise. I recommend going and reading it to get a taste for uh, the intricacies and brilliancies and, and speculations of Clement's thought. But just when maybe we've had enough philosophy, maybe even we might say too much philosophy, at the end of this work, Clement stops writing prose and breaks into poetry. And this is what he writes. The bridle of horses untamed, the wing of unwandering birds, bright helmet of youths in the fray, and shepherd to lambs of the king, assemble a throng of the innocent youths to perfectly praise in the holiest hymns with the purest of tongues, Christ Jesus, the guide of the young. Did you pay attention to the rhythm? Da 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 Now just hearing me say the da da might be a little might be a little tiresome, but there's a very intentional, not just anapestic and iambic meter in this, but also a variation of line length to create expectations, to break expectations, and then to create resolution. The bridle of horses untamed, the wing of unwandering birds, bright helmet of youths in the fray, and shepherd to lambs of the king. This is the first four lines of this poem. Horses, birds, youths, and lambs. These are fantastic, uh, very traditional, both in Hebrew thought and in Greek thought, images. Horses, of course, horses. Hector is a Hector breaker of horses in, in Greek poetry, the Iliad chief among them. In fact, the last phrase of the Iliad is 
Hector Breaker of Horses. And so they buried Hector Breaker of Horses. Who is the one who bridles untamed horses here? Is it Hector? No, it's Christ. The wing of unwandering birds. Who is the wing that guides birds who are flying true? Christ. Bright helmet of youths in the fray. Oh my goodness, Greek poetry, especially the Iliad, uh, Roman poetry, especially the second half of the Aeneid is filled with helmets of youths in the fray. In fact, two of my favorite sections in all of ancient literature, the creation of the armor of Aeneas in the Aeneid and the creation of the armor of Achilles in the Iliad. What is the helmet of youths in the fray for Clement? Is it some great masterpiece made by Vulcan or Hephaestus? No, it's Christ. Uh, Christ is the answer to all of these, all of these riddles. The bridle of the horse is untamed, the wing of unwandering birds, right? Helmet of you is in the fray. And, and those of us who are familiar with both Old and New Testament are more familiar with this image, shepherd to lambs of the king. Who is the helmet? Who is the shepherd? Who is the bridle? Who is the wing? It's Christ. And in fact, shepherd to lambs of the king almost doesn't sound to us like it's metaphorical because we're so used to calling Christ shepherd and calling Christ lamb and calling Christ king. But Clement's readers maybe haven't been as pummeled by poetry and songs using shepherds and lambs as we have. And so this is tying this imagery that we get from the Old Testament and the New Testament to the imagery that we get from the Iliad and the Aeneid. This is sort of a marrying of imagery from Hebrew poetic tradition to imagery of Greek and Latin poetic tradition and making them all point to something that's neither Old Testament Hebrew or Greco-Roman pagan. It points to Christ. So this, this is a brilliant stanza that draws together in Greek meter Greek Roman and Hebrew ideas and points to their fulfillment in Christ. After these four lines uh, of what we would call sort of a variation of anapestic trimeter, the bridle of horses untamed, that's three stress syllables if we're talking English or three long syllables if we're talking Greek. So we have four lines of anapestic trimeter. And if you want to nitpick, you would say, ah, but Dr. Bartell, there's not an anapest in the first foot of each of those lines. There's an iamb because it's da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, not da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. You're missing an unstressed syllable at the beginning. Aha, I will say, you are absolutely right. In fact, I translated this and found that an iamb sounded really nice there. Also, there's precedent for it. Ancient Greek writers would often, especially in opening feet of their lines, substitute a different type of foot, both to keep us on our toes, to show us a new line is coming, but basically to show off. I'm going to mess up the meter, and I'm going to put it back together, and I'm going to do it handily. After these three lines of anapestic slash iambic trimeter, we then get shorter lines. We get anapestic dimeter. Assemble a throng of the innocent youths to perfectly praise in the holiest hymns. Four lines more of one foot less. So we have anapestic trimeter for four lines. We have anapestic now dimeter for four lines. And then we finish off the stanza with the purest of tongues, Christ Jesus, the guide of the young. We have a final line of iambic dimeter, anapestic dimeter, and then we have a final line that brings us back to the 
anapestic trimeter. This creation of a pattern to the point that we're tired of it or weary of it and then releasing us from it into something new formally. And that's what Clement is doing here. Clement is moving Christian poetry forward by doing it with metrical structure that harkens back to the Greco-Roman pagan classical tradition. Why is all of this important? Well, someone like Dante is writing of Christian themes and their relationship to classical themes in traditional meter that owes its patterns to Latin meter. He's writing, of course, in Italian, but it owes its structuring and its heritage formally to Latin. Who is the first who really starts to experiment with putting these ancient languages, metrical structures, into the service of writing about Christian theology? Well, it's Clement. You don't really get Dante without Clement. And when you read ancient classical poetry, Homer, Virgil, Horace, and then you move forward to Dante and you skip that you know, 500 to 1,000 years of early Christian poetry, you're really missing those men and women who provide a link, who did the pioneering work to create a literary and a theological climate in which someone like Dante can write what he did. We're not done with early Christian poetry. There are many more poets to look at. Thank you for joining us. This has been Dr. Timothy Bartell for the Poetry Corner podcast. Check us out at stconstantine.org for more information. Thank you.